Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Something is severely wrong here. No way with our level of innovation and intelligence should we be so chronically diseased. Hi, I'm Mark Groves. I'm a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. At an early point in my life, I became obsessed with understanding relationships, the intricacies of how people connect. And through this exploration, I have created a life and a business dedicated to learning out loud and exploring how we interact with each other and the world. This podcast brings the world's top thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, physicians, scientists, researchers, best-selling authors, and health and wellness experts under one roof to discuss the good, the bad, the messy, and of course, the beautiful parts of the human experience. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I can't wait to dive in with you. So first off, I want to say thank you to you. You've been quite an inspiration in the last couple of years from the context of just how much you've been consistent and committed to integrity. And that's been really inspiring for me. So I appreciate you. Thank you. I received that, man. I received that. To be honest, I really didn't acknowledge that uh, because I'm just being myself. But now that I've you know been out speaking, going to different events, it's so crazy. Like this is, that is a specific thing that people are coming up to me and saying like, thank mm-hmm. you so much for like helping me to keep my sanity. Thank you so much for helping me to, you know, be able to think constructively and to be able to, you know, you just use basic critical thinking because, you know, fill in the blank, maybe, you know, something with work or relationship or, you know, I was scared and I was just being reactive Well, I think it was so beautiful because you broke down the actual data, like went into all sides, all parts, all criticisms of it. And I, you know, I had the real honor of reading your book, Eat Smarter, recently. And I've been consuming your podcast voraciously, your content, but I hadn't actually read your book. And so I wanted to read that before we spoke. And I found you did the same thing with food. You know, you did this really beautiful job of making it much easier to understand, but also something that seems to be really heavy for us is looking at our relationship with food in our bodies. And you've turned it into kind of a, like a fun adventure. I found myself laughing a lot in your book. So yeah, it it seems to be something you're consistently doing across all your channels. Thank you, man. That's again, some things you don't really realize that you're doing just because you're being yourself. 
mm-hmm. but it's been much more intentional because just having the exposure that I have, I'm almost here. I'm about a month and a half away from my 20th anniversary of being in health and health and wellness. And, you know, just being having that face-to-face clinical work and then being able to speak and to write books and to have these conversations, I've really just fleshed out, which is crazy to say something like this, but the dire need for authenticity Mm -hmm. and leaning into that. And like, I like to, just in my day-to-day life, I'm not just sitting around talking about nutrition or whatever with my wife, but we are sitting around laughing and we're having a good time, saying crazy stuff, you know, like that's just our relationship. And also my family, we have this atmosphere of of play and but also we have an atmosphere of challenge all right we're constantly challenging each other and i I might be the ringleader in the challenging you know (laughs) let my wife tell it but um just being able to that challenge inspires growth and so to not be comfortable with my position not to be comfortable with my perspective that i'm right and I constantly mm-hmm. challenge myself and challenge my thinking. Like these things have been cultivated and I'm grateful for them because that just kind of comes through in the words. It comes through in what I write. And also I love to write. I just, I love ever since I was a kid being able to create something out of nothing, really, you know? Uh, it's such a fantastic thing once you really think about it and to evoke emotion within another person from out of nothing, from these mm-hmm. words, like it's something so special about it. And I think it's a huge responsibility as well. Like I really take it seriously. So I'm very intentional in the words that I use and the way that I construct sentences, the way that I construct ideas. So all of that is poured into it. This is why also, whenever I do write a book, I pretty much shut everything else down. And just like I go into that, into that world. Well, you could tell you were deeply immersed in all the research as you went through the book. Like, I really loved all the references, all the trials that you quoted, all the the evidence that you spoke about. But you really took what is, you know, I think challenging often for academics is to humanize it. It's like make it relatable into like, all right, these studies exist, but how does that, what does that mean in my everyday life and my everyday choices? And you know, I think in the last two and a half, three years, especially, it's been magnified this fear of being outspoken, this fear of saying something that goes against a narrative or goes. And in reading your story, what I found is that, and you can please correct me if I'm wrong, or like, I'd really like you to speak more to it, is that you had to do that in order to save yourself. Like you had to exit the narrative in order to leave the story you were told about your health, about how you can change it and what that means. And so I wanted people to, because your story was and is incredibly inspirational. You know, I was really struck by the things that you were told when you were young and what happened to you. Like, I couldn't believe what happened to your hip. Like that, I was thinking of Bo Jackson, because I think that happened to Bo Jackson, right? Like a similar type of injury. Man, talk about a phenomenon, you know, Bo Jackson. I remember playing him on Tecmo Bowl. Like to really <laughs> go back to like Nintendo, and you know another character on there is Bo Eason. Uh, he's a defensive back on on Tecmo Bowl. He's a friend now. Like I got a friend in the real world who is a guy little, that you played in a video game. So cool, man. So cool. That's dope. So you know, just being able to you know have this perspective because really our outcomes in our lives are determined by our actions, 
Our actions are determined by our thoughts. We can't have an action without a thought that precedes it. Even if we have the action show up in the world, just like getting up, right? Mm -hmm. Getting up out of a chair. A thought, whether it's unconscious or not, precedes that activity. But those habitual thoughts are going to determine what our actions are. But even what precedes our thoughts are our beliefs. Our Mm -hmm. beliefs about who we are, about what we're capable of, about what we deserve, about our environment, about the world around us, our beliefs are really the catalyst from which everything in our life exists. Everything springs from that. It's the root of all the fruits that we see in the real world, right? It's that stuff beneath. Mm -hmm. And so if we're coming into things with a belief, like I had this belief, or sometimes it's, it's the ignorance, it's the unawareness of our beliefs, right, that we take on and, and not having exposure to other beliefs that are driving the machine. And so for me, I had, a no, I had no concept that food mattered. I thought it was just stuff that you eat, period, in a story, nothing else further. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the thrust that I had in, in my life and how I was moving through the world. Being in a family who will just say is about 80% of family members being obese, and th- there isn't even a family member who, who was not diagnosed with a chronic disease, right? And if, uh-huh. if you think that's abnormal, here in the United States right now, this is according to the CDC, all right, this was published before COVID, all right? The CDC published a report finding that here in the United States, approximately 53%, 52.8% speci- exactly of our citizens have at least one chronic disease. 30%, nearly 30% have two or more chronic diseases. So it's the norm. It's a norm to be to, to have a chronic disease. Now, here's the thing. This was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's one of our most prestigious journals. This was twenty. This was twenty eighteen, as yeah. well. Yeah. In the same year, they published a study, meta analysis, looking at the data, looking at what are what is the number one contributor to our epidemics of chronic diseases: heart disease, cancer, diabetes, liver disease. Alzheimer's is creeping its way into the top five cause of de- of death. By the way, obesity. Wow. Right. So all of these things that are killing the majority of our citizens, the number one risk factor was poor diet. It's the number one thing, all right? So now here's the thing. We know this, but we Mm -hmm. don't really get it because it's so superficial, right? We often think about food in the context of body appearance or um, body composition. Most people, when they think of diet, they think in terms of weight loss. It's just a cognitive Mm -hmm. association in our society. And it is the biggest mistake because food... To put food in that little pithy box is dangerous because every single cell in our body is made from the food that we eat. So as you're looking mm. at me, you're seeing what I've eaten. As I'm looking at you, I'm seeing the, what you've eaten, right? Every cell of my heart is made from food. Every cell of my bones, my synovial fluid, every cell in my brain is made from the food that I've eaten. How on earth do we have a medical paradigm where food and nutrition, when I was in school in my conventional university and I was taking nutritional science on a pre-med track as elective, I didn't have to take it. Mm-hmm. Why is that considered a soft science? Today it's changed. But when yeah. I got into this field, it's considered a soft science to the degree my physician, when I got this diagnosis of the degenerative bone disease, degenerative disc disease, as you mentioned, I broke my hip at track practice. I didn't fall 
I didn't hit anybody. I was just running and my hip broke. My iliac crest just broke it's off. Crazy. The tip of my bone just broke off. And I didn't, at that point, I didn't know, I'd never really been injured before, except little minor things. But I thought maybe I pulled a muscle. I didn't have any context. But mm-hmm. when I went in to get a scan done and the physician could see my bone is floating off in space, I was subject to something called standard of care, which is I was given some insets, I was given some crutches, I was given advice to you know stay off the leg. And here's a really cool thing. I don't usually talk about this. I was exposed to an interesting treatment though at the time that was a little bit forward thinking. I was, ex- I was given ultrasound treatments, right? So like once a week I come in, I get ultrasound treatment. Even that, because it becomes a, it's a part of popular lexicon, we don't really think about what that means. He was using sound to treat my cells, mm. right? Ultrasound, man, if we, I, this would be a conversation for another day. There are so, it's ridiculous how many studies have been conducted on using sound for a variety of treatments, including treating inoperable brain tumors using sound to break wow. apart cancer cells. Bro, like there's so many, it's phenomenal. And then we forget the fact that we are ourselves, we're we're just really built from these atoms that are, you know what I'm saying? Like Resonating we look like this again. solid yeah. thing, right? But it's frequency and it's connecting yeah. all of this, right? So, but that's a little sidebar. Now, here's the thing. Standard of care, drugs, don't do anything, right? Yeah. That's standard of care. Or next thing, surgery, right? That can be an option. If we're dealing with cancer, we could poison you or burn you, all right? <laughs> so these are our, this is our utility belt. These are the things that are programmed in our culture because they have some degree of efficacy, but they're missing the most important component, which is these are symptoms of an underlying deficiency and or underlying condition that we're using drugs to treat this thing. I was so deficient on the very things that were making my my bones and my, like, for example, I'm just throw a couple things out here. I knew about calcium for strong bones because of commercials, right? right. That's what I was exposed to. And so I'm like drinking milk, milk Same. does the body good. Yeah. And yet I'm breaking, I broke my hip out here on the track. Little did I know, and this wasn't until I get this diagnosis when I was 20, that in order for us to actually increase our bone density and to have not, we don't just want hard bone. We want our bones to be not pliable per se, but to be able to bend and not break if mm-hmm. the situation calls for it. Because our bones are alive. They're not just some hard static tissue. They're alive. And they're constantly soaking up nutrition as well. So 20, when I was 20, I finally find out that there are all of these critical ingredients that I had no idea about. You know, vitamin K2, vitamin D, uh, sulfur, silica, all these different things I was radically deficient on because my diet at that point when I was 20, no exaggeration, just like with the number of people with chronic diseases, when I said my family, where I'm coming from, at the time I was eating fast food 300 plus days a year. All oh right. man, the drive-through diet, and the only time I didn't eat fast food was when I didn't have like two dollars to go, and then I would just eat processed, ultra-processed food at home, which would be like I'd eat a box of macaroni and cheese for a meal, family can of spaghettios. This is literally what I was making my tissues out of every day because I didn't know any better. You know, I was living in Ferguson, Missouri at this time, and I'm I'm not kidding, I'm swimming in fast food restaurants and processed food. 
outlets, right? Liquor stores and the like. And so this is all that I and my community are exposed to. And so again, just one more mirror point today. The average American's diet is composed of over 60% ultra processed foods. So over 60% of our diet, the average person is ultra processed food. So again, I'm not alone. If you're someone who struggles with getting a good sleep, then you're going to want to hear this. You know, we all know that a full night of sleep is essential when we're working towards optimizing our overall health, right? And Cure Nutrition Sleep Bundle, which combines their best-selling product, which is called Zen, and their most potent CBN, it is the answer to ensuring that you get that full night of sleep every night. Now, Zen is a blend of functional mushrooms, cannabinoids, and adaptogens. Well, the CBN product is a lesser-known cannabinoid that's found in the hemp plant. These supplements were designed to support the two most critical stages of your body's natural sleep cycle, the REM sleep and the non-REM deep sleep. Cured's raw CBN oil contains 30 milligrams of CBD, 5 milligrams of CBN, and a low dose of THC. The array of cannabinoids, they all work together to create what is known as the entourage effect, which means each cannabinoid works synergistically for greater efficacy than THC-free products. When it starts to kick in, you'll feel as though you're laying under a weighted blanket. It's wild. And once you're asleep, Zen, which contains reishi mushroom, magnesium, 20 milligrams of CBD, and ashwagandha, to ensure that your body is successfully cycling out of non-REM, deep sleep, into REM, and back again. The best part, though, is that you won't wake up groggy. With this sleep bundle, I wake up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. And right now, Cured is extending an exclusive offer to you, my listeners. You can grab Zen and CBD in the sleep bundle and get an extra 20% off Cured's already discounted price by visiting curednutrition.com slash create the love and using the coupon code create the love at checkout. With this extra discount, you're getting 36% off the regular price. That's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash create the love and coupon code create the love at checkout to save that extra 20%. It sounds strange coming out of my mouth that, that I was eating fast food and processed food that much. That's all my diet was, all right? So now here's where everything kind of takes its turn. When I finally get this diagnosis when I was 20, because I had two herniated discs, which I didn't I didn't realize. I went in because I was having leg pain. And he said that I had severe de- degeneration of my L4, L5, S1 disc. And they were like black looking at them on wow. the scan. My other disc, you could see the light through them. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's, what do we, you know, <laughs> what do we got to do? Let's <laughs> what fix are this, our solutions? You know? Yeah. And he looked at me and he literally pumped his hands like this. He was like, whoa, slow down, son. I'm sorry, but this is incurable. You have, and he tells me the diagnosis, degenerative disc disease. And I'm sorry, this is something that just happens, right? Now, it didn't register because my belief system was some, you know, injury, athlete, something happens, rehab, get back out there, right? And so I was just like, and I literally asked this question. And only recently do I understand where the question came from because for years I was just like, I have no idea why I would have asking this question. I had no context to ask him. I yeah. asked him, does this have anything to do with what I'm eating? Should I change how I'm exercising? And that's when he looked at me like I was from another planet, right? And he said, "This has these are his exact words. This has nothing to do with what you're eating. This is something that just happens. And I'm sorry that it happened to you. You have the spine of an 80-year-old man. And we're going to get you some, some things to help you to manage this. We're going to get you some medication. And we, we can look at surgery down the road. But, you know, I'm sorry, son. And so he took my agency away. Yeah. Not only do I have this incurable thing, but there's nothing I could do about it. 
And so that's, today we know the term is a nocebo effect. So this is giving a negative injunction that changes everything in my biochemistry because my thoughts create chemistry in my body instantaneously, Yeah. right? So now everything about me, I'm believing this authority figure that I'm a victim. There's nothing that I could do. This bad thing happened to me. I have no agency. I have no responsibility. I'm just going to go walk into the sunset and just my degeneration and degradation is just, that's my lot in life. My story is, is, is ending here from all the visions that I had about, you know, success and happiness and health and all those things. And so I left there obviously with my head down and I went from like a nuisance of a pain to chronic debilitating pain within like two weeks. And a big part of that I know today, of course, was just, he gave me permission too. He said, again, here's some medication Mm -hmm. and bed rest, do nothing. Number one, he told me this has nothing to do with what I was eating, but he gave me some pills to eat. Right. (laughs) So that's the level of thinking that I'm dealing with. And number two, I could still walk. I could, I was still functional. And so he's telling me not to do anything. So not only is my spine going to atrophy, now everything else is because life is movement, right? So I'm stacking conditions against myself. The worst thing I could do is to do nothing. It's not like I should go out and deadlift 400 pounds, but to do nothing is just going to exacerbate the problem. So anyways, just to fast forward the story, everything changed. It took two years. Because at this point, I was still on my fast food diet, my drive through diet. Now I'd gained weight. You know, at least I had some level of fitness that I was hanging my hat on. Like I was the fit person in my family. Now that story was over. And I'm in so much pain. I'm on all these different medications because every time I go to another doctor, they give me new drugs. And it, everything changed when I changed my belief. That was the first step. I changed my belief. Because I believed that I was unhelpable. I believed that this situation was incurable. I had taken that on and embodied it. And I was replicating that with my thoughts and my actions and my outcomes. But this habitual question, and this is, by the way, this is called instinctive elaboration. This is an automatic reflex in the brain. We're always answering the questions we pose ourselves. And so my dominant question that I was constantly asking, often subconsciously, was why me? Why me? Mm-hmm. Why Why won't somebody help me? Why did this happen to me? Why me? Why me? And so I'm constantly scanning my internal and external environment for reasons why I suck, why my life sucks, why I'm unhelpable, why this happened to me because I'm not filling the blank. And everything changed when I got the final one of another opinion. You know, I highly encourage people to get a second or third, and third opinion before taking, you know, life altering uh, medical action. Caveat though, get an opinion from somebody who has the same perspective as you or same goal as you. Let me put it like mm-hmm. that, same goal as, as you. So if you don't want to be on lisinopril for your hypertension, you want to f- manage this through changing your lifestyle, get a physician who has the same goal as you, right? I was mm-hmm. going to the same type of thinkers, right? So going back to that quote attributed to Einstein, if you keep doing a, a certain thing again and again, expecting a, a different result, that's the definition of insanity. As attributed to Einstein, it's the internet age. <laughs> he didn't tell me personally, but that's insanity. I'm going to the same people expecting a different result. Yeah. So when I realized that, that's when everything changed and I shifted my dominant question. I didn't realize this at the time. I simply asked because I'd seen, they keep telling me I can't get better. 
They keep telling me that there's nothing I can do. Why, if I want better, why do I keep believing them? And I mm-hmm. ask a very simple question. I ask, what can I do to get healthy? What can I do to get healthy? I hadn't asked any th- question remotely close to that for two years. And my tendency, my, my personal character tends to be assertive, forward thinking, uh, problem solving, right? I was the first one in my family to, to go to college, let alone gra- gra- graduate from college. So I was just like progressive. But I had, because of the struggle I experienced in my life up until that point, I'm sure that him giving me that diagnosis was a permission slip to stop fighting. And I took it. But it didn't resonate with my blueprint from how my reality was supposed to be, what I saw from my life and what people who believed in me saw. And so that was really the spark. It, it was the people who believed in me, you know, my, my, my grandmother who saw so much potential, invested so much in me, realizing that, yeah, her, her dreams exist in my DNA. And mm. if I'm going to do something about this and turn the story around, I've got to take an action. I've got to take responsibility. So I changed my dominant question. How can I get healthy? Last little tiny part, it is crazy because within six weeks, the solutions, the books, the people, the environments, the things that were there the whole time, (laughs) I I was able to see them. The thing was, I wasn't acclimated to them. I I was stuck in this doom and gloom and just constantly looking for things to affirm why everything's so bad. And so within six weeks, of, you know, I changed some things, of course, we'll probably talk about some of these today, but yeah. within six weeks, the 20 pounds that, that I gained, 20, 25 pounds, I'd lost, and this is results not typical, I'd lost about 15 pounds. And the pain I've been experiencing that had me terrified and on all these drugs was gone. And nine months later, I got a scan done and my two herniated discs had retracted on their own. My degeneration had resolved where I could see the light shining through my disc to that degree. And that was just within the first nine months. Yeah. All right. So, and all that led to, you know, a passion to be of service and to teach other people to get, to get them educated about their body and their potential. I'm curious, what was the, like, was there a pivotal experience that transitioned your mindset to ask that different question? Or was it just that you just had this thought that was different and all of a sudden you felt hope and possibility and, and you wanted to cling to that? You know, it just seems like such a, like a powerful switch, but also one that I'm wondering if came from like someone speaking hope into you or the mirror of hope or possibility. You know this too, man. Suffering is a good teacher. You know, pain is a good teacher if we want to learn the lesson. And so being in so much pain and, you know, I was in, I was hurting so badly and I, I have a Guys like to think we have a high pain tolerance, you know, but talk to my wife who had our son, you know, naturally, she brings it up at least once a week to to, to check (laughs) my ego, right? Like, so just from the perspective of what I've experienced, I have a pretty high pain tolerance, but I was, the pain was so bad that I was afraid to stand up because every time I would stand Mm. up, I get this like jolt down my, down my leg, which is the sciatic, but it's just like a one shot. Just this mm-hmm. one thing, and then I could walk normally with a normal gait. But I couldn't walk normally until I had that hit me. So I just stopped standing up as much as possible. Wow. So this is my experience, right? I'm in so much pain. And I, again, being on rock bottom, it could be a gr- great place to stand up from. But mm-hmm. as you mentioned, I think it's so important for us to have a light or 
to have someone who believes in us, even if it's us. You know, some of the greatest stories were people who had immense belief in themselves, right? Muhammad Ali, right? And then there are other great stories of people, the people who believed in them that inspired them to move on to greatness. For me, it was my grandmother who, you know, before we got started, I was talking a little bit about the gift of being able to write and taking words and creating, having endless possibilities to create using words Mm -hmm. and creating emotion within another human being through words. Like it's such a powerful thing. And I latched onto that because of my grandmother who, when I was a kid, like she got me this little Garfield notebook. And like, I started practicing my letters and stuff. And next thing you know, I'm writing things and writing little notes and writing stories. And my grandmother really instilled in me this value with education. So school was a breeze for me, to be honest not just because there's some kind of natural intelligence, because school is a system. It's a certain way of thinking, right? A lot of rote memorization. You might just have that good skill set, right? Mm-hmm. And so school was pretty easy for me because I understood the system, right? They're telling you exactly what to do, or what to answer. There isn't a lot of, you know what I'm saying? Like critical thinking yeah. involved, right? And so my problem started to arise when I use critical thinking or question things and then you have that pushback from the teacher, right? And I remember it very specifically. And it was in writing class. It was senior lit. And so for me, somebody who believed in me, she would, oh, man, it's so crazy. This whole time when I was dealing with my this disease, this chronic disease uh, diagnosis, for those two years, my grandmother kept calling me and it was annoying because <laughs> it's just like, it's like your grandmother, like, what? why? Grandma, leave me alone. Like, I'm fine. I'm fine. But she knew I wasn't fine. Man. I, she, so I, I don't know what the reason is, but she just believed in me so much. I don't know why. And I'm, because I'm with you, man, I'm going to share this, but there was some issues. I think she had 12 grandkids. Wow. Even to this day there, I have cousins and, you know, and, and uncles and aunts and, you know, siblings who are like, you were her favorite and they got <laughs> beef with me. They have beef with me. <laughs> Because I could be like, nah, it's not true. But if I look at it, but I understand because I was her first. Oh, and because yeah. of the instability in my household where my mother was, man, like the environment that, that she was living in. And when I would go to stay with her, I was sleeping on the floor next to fucking mouse traps and roaches crawling around. Right? Wow. So she took me out of that and gave me so much of the things that our, our psychological needs were met, mm-hmm. right? Certainty, safety, uncertainty, like variety and things like that, because she made so many things special, like everything was magical, right? She got to really be the mother that she had within her, with me, mm. you know? And so I understand, I do understand. And I'm grateful to be the benefactor of that. But because I was first, And because I had all of this weighing on me or I had all of this responsibility to make it Mm -hmm. out of these conditions, Mm -hmm. it was the hardest for me as well. Yeah. No, I didn't have any blueprint, any example. And so I was, I I suffered through all of it. I fell down so many times that no one else saw. I was kicked out of high school my entire junior year for fighting because in my environment, that's what we were taught to do. That's how you mm-hmm. solve conflicts. And I was going to this 
fancy school is like number two school in Missouri. And I'm, you know, I'm in the DSEG program, a bust out. It's like an hour bus ride there, hour bus ride back every day. Scholar athlete, student advisory. Uh, I was brought on in this program called Inroads where I got, I was going to get credit because I got kicked out of school before it happened. Credit at St. Louis University, level classes. Oh, wow. Everything, if you looked at it on paper, and I'm talking like, I barely tried and I'm just being a thousand with you. Yeah. School wasn't really that much of a, a challenge for me because again, I understood the system. Mm-hmm. And that year, my junior year, where the rest of my classmates, my friends are progressing in life, you know, they're going to school, they're living a high school life. I'm working full time at McDonald's, right? Damn. Like the irony. Right. I could have easily had that trajectory. And nobody would have blamed me. My environment, my family, because I had to do what I had to do. That was their mindset. Mm -hmm. I had to handle my business when I was threatened, right? But I knew within myself, this was not my story. And so I did everything I could to graduate on time. I graduated with my class in three years. I took zero hour, but I had already had extra credits I had accumulated because of being a good student. So yeah. it wasn't even that difficult, except I had to go to zero hour as a senior, which is a class before class, which I was pretty much the only senior doing that. Uh, but, you know, and then I also got accepted to every school that I applied to, every college. You know, I had to get re- letters of recommendation. I had to try a little bit harder as far as like the paperwork side of things. But, you know, I found a way. But I could have easily, and I, I, I'm intimately, I'm sharing this with you. It was right there. It was close. Like I could have grabbed it. And just been content and stayed there and worked, the other way. made some money, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Did whatever the environment was doing, you know, mess with some girls and like have some kids, whatever, you know. But there was something that was driving me to get my ass up, to get up and to take responsibility and to follow through and make it happen because no one else held me accountable. I had to do it myself. So there was responsibilities that come along with people believing in you. And yeah, so that's true. when that happened, when you asked like, what was that moment? That's what it was. Like I really, really hit me. My grandmother believed in me. Like she invested in me and here I am. I have the audacity to quit. Mm. Nah, it's, it's done. It's done. Well, you said something in your book that I found really interesting uh, when you had learned about epigenetics and you said, I had elicited the function of ep of several epigenetic factors that were causing my DNA to print out lower quality copies of me. And I was like, oh, shit, that is, can you speak more to that? Because I feel like that's, that's not just on a nutrition level. That feels like a, just like our potential, our possibility, what we can be. As I say this, it's with so much gratitude and honor and like a little sprinkle of unbelievable that I could mm-hmm. share that I got to talk with the person who really impressed upon culture the understanding of epigenetics, Dr. Bruce Lipton. He's been mm, talking about yeah. this for a He's long a time. He's been on the podcast. Oh man, that's that's my guy, one of my real inspirations. Oh, and so he's, he's been talking about this for a couple of decades now, whereas epigenetics is, I mean, there's so many different researchers and scientists and physicians who are who are saying this term as if they have known about it forever, but high probability in their education, they didn't hear shit about that. Mm. Really, we were still on genetic determinism just a few years ago, 
right? So our genes are really controlling our destiny or controlling our fate or our outcomes. And our genes are obviously important because it's kind of like the instructions, it's the blueprint to make us, to mm-hmm. make certain cells, to do certain functions, even, even our connection to the environment, right? We have this circadian timing system, which again, it sounded like a soft science back when I was in school. Circadian, what? Sounds like a horoscope, <laughs> right? But today, circadian medicine is edging out, like starting to really reach up towards that top field of science right now. Is we got epigenetics, we have the study of the microbiome. Is like these are hot, but mm-hmm. circadian medicine is really rising up there to one of those top tier things being studied. But our circadian timing system that is literally determining when certain hormones are getting produced, neurotransmitters, our digestion, our reaction time. Every, so much, everything about us really is synced up with a 24-hour solar day, right? It's determining when things are happening within our biology. This circadian timing system that's connecting us to the world around us and er- connecting every one of our cells, our trillions of cells within our body, these circadian clocks are literally functional genes. They're genes within each and every one of our cells and or proteins that determine and control other genes and proteins. Right. So these genes, but now here's the thing. What's controlling the expression of said genes is what's happening in the environment. For example, what the main environmental cue determining these gene, genetic expression, which it has a variety, one gene can have a you know a thousand different potentials or different expressions, is light and dark cycles. So exposure to light mm. is going to determine whether or not certain genes are expressed, how they're expressed. And all the other downstream things that happen, right? Whether it's our cognitive function, our memory, our reaction time, our hormones that are being produced, whether or not we're producing a certain amount of testosterone, environmental cues, sunlight. It's an epigenetic controller. The top two epigenetic controllers from the circadian perspective is light and feeding times. When we're eating Mm. has a huge determination on our genetic expression. And there are entire fields of nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics studying how our diet, how our nutrition, because every bite of food that we eat instantly shifts everything about us. Of course, it could be the most subtle ways, but some things we eat can almost instantly kill your ass as well. You know what I'm saying? Like food is so powerful. Yeah. Most things are, of course, are not that magnified, but truly Whatever we eat instantaneously alters our genetic expression. That's nutrigenetics, nutrigenomics. But also, there's within nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics, it's the other side of your genetic makeup leans itself towards certain foods that are going to be better for you than other people, right? So this is where we have now this new model trying to look at people's genetic makeup and say, hey, okay, these foods, this type of thing is going to be better for you eating at this time. That's where we're headed. Right. Mm-hmm. But for me, even as I say this, and I'm smiling because I'm here to make sure that we don't become too neurotic <laughs> because we can do all this self quantifying activity and buy all the gadgets and all the things and miss the fucking point, which is listen to your body. You already know everything that you need, you know what you need to do. It's all within you already. But are you tuned into what's happening within your? inner universe or are you so externally focused 
that you're missing out on this valuable feedback that can never, ever be replicated in any test, in any other diagnosis or prognosis. Nothing else can give you better feedback on what you need than listening to your inner guidance system. Do you think that the standard American diet slash the food pyramid slash process slash, you know, (laughs) fat's bad, all that kind of stuff. Do you think that disconnects us from our ability to be intuitive about our eating? Like it, it feels like it's a cycle that kind of feeds itself in some sense. Yeah. Feeds itself. Yeah. Oh yeah. You see what I did there? I didn't even know. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You know, you're, you're 1000% on the money with this because, but then, then it's just like, what is the outcome? Like, what does that lead to? Why would companies do something like that, right? If they're working in in, a, in any domain of ethics, something's off here. You know, there's something definitely yeah. that is skewed. And so th- for me, it's going back to like, where, how did all this, like, where, how did this happen? And so one of the interesting things is the awareness that even with food, right? So when we're talking about food, it's still, it's, it's, it's the matter itself. This is, it's just chemicals. It's a makeup of a variety of different chemicals and chemical structures to the degree if we zoom down far enough even the flavors themselves are just a conglomeration of chemicals Mm -hmm. and with the advent of something like a gas chromatograph scientists were able to identify the chemical makeup of certain flavors right Mm -hmm. so a blueberry is simply this cascade of chemicals and if we Mm -hmm. want to put blueberry flavor into something no blueberries necessary we just need to provide this chemical makeup. This is where we have the advent of artificial flavors. Now, they don't have to be perfect, but it's just enough to muddy up the waters of our biochemistry. And mm-hmm. that's really what the problem is because as we evolved, we had this phenomenon called post-ingestive feedback. All right, post-ingestive feedback. Essentially, whenever we would eat a thing, our biology specifically our brain, would take note of what came along with that particular flavor. That flavor had a post-it note along with it, a biochemical post-it note that I had this flavor and it came along with selenium. It came along with this amount of amino acids. It came along with you know copper, whatever it is. So post-ingestive feedback, our biology took notes of when I eat this thing, this flavor means I'm getting these things right? Mm-hmm. And so whenever we would become deficient in certain things, or it would start to be low in our biology and our stores, it would drive us through cravings to go and seek out those flavors. That's how we're wired up. That makes sense. Right? And so there's this intelligence and it's still, it's the reason that we know this right now is animal studies. And you see the intelligence with animals when they're left to their own devices going for certain foods at certain times. Like, it's just like they know, or if they're sick, they'll go and eat certain things. They'll eat certain, you know, maybe a certain weed, you know, whatever it might be, some dandelion or whatever. They're driven to eat certain things at certain times under certain conditions. It's just like, what, why, what, what's going on there? It's this natural intelligence because of this post-ingestive feedback. They know what to go to, right? For us, Obviously, the situation is much more complex because we're not operating in the sphere of what's, quote, natural anymore because we have so many artificial things 
and artificial foods, as I mentioned, 60% of the average American's diet is ultra processed foods. It's very different. A processed food is like olive oil is processed. All right. Mm. It's slow down. Everybody listening, slow down. This is not, it's still really, really good. I'm going to tell you why, but it's taking an olive and pressing the oil out of it. That's a, that's a processing process. If it's done correctly, it's low temperature. It's a cold process. That olive oil, for example, researchers at Auburn University found that oleocanthal-rich olive oil is one of the few foods ever discovered that can help to reduce inflammation in the brain and help to repair the blood-brain barrier. And this is important because, I talked about this in Eat Smarter as well, Uh, researchers at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine found that neuroinflammation is one of the leading contributors to our epidemics of obesity and insulin resistance. Nobody's talking about this. No, so definitely not. Specifically, it's hypothalamic inflammation. So this is a master gland in our brain that is really a, our body's internal. It's, it's a master gland because it's integrating our hormones, our endocrine system, and our nervous system. But also it's responsible for appetite, for metabolism, for temperature. The list goes on and on and on. But it's, it's kind of this internal thermostat. And so hypothalamic inflammation is a direct contributor to increased rates of body fat and insulin resistance. And increased body fat and insulin resistance creates more hypothalamic inflammation. So we get trapped in this vicious loop. And Mm -hmm. then they're just, you know, they're just like, oh, just, you know, go on a diet, right? Do your Mm -hmm. point system, whatever. Like we're missing the point here because we're not addressing the underlying contributor. And so that's one of the benefits of olive oil. Thousands of years, it's been around, thousands of years, storied. Very different from this highly refined canola oil that it's not cold pressed. First of all, the amount of chemicals and solvents and all these things just to break it down to make it suitable for processing, the high temperatures that take those very volatile omega-6 fats that is incredibly high in and completely degrades and oxidizes these fats before you even touch it. Not to mention the deodorizers used because it smells absolutely horrible. The list goes on and on, all right? But that's the majority of fats that are used in cooking and processed foods today. Even at Whole Foods, as of this recording, you go to the hot bar, they're using fucking canola oil because of the marketing that it's so good for us, right? How are they doing that? It's just levels. It's levels of awareness. It's not intentional. They do a lot of stuff right. But if anybody wants to just go to YouTube and just type in how is canola oil made, just uh, I'm just going to give you a heads up. You're not going <laughs> to like ready to never eat it again. You're not going to like what you see. But so that being said, olive oil is a processed food. Canola oil is an ultra processed food. Olive oil, not the problem. Ultra processed food is taking corn and somehow it turns into Lucky Charms. Like you, you would <laughs> yeah, never that. know. <laughs> It's magic. Exactly. It's magically delicious. That's how good marketing is too. You and I both know the fucking jingle, you know, sell cereal and sugar to kids. Still to this day, it's ingrained in our psychology. Like you just said, like these little jingles and things. And it's to like desensitize us and to humanize that because there's nothing real about it. It's nothing good about it. And this is not to villainize it though. Let me be clear because- once we get into the stigma of like, that's bad food, mm-hmm. our identity can get hinged on that because we give morality to food. If you want to eat the Lucky Charms on a whim, so be it. 
you know, like, but just understand that we probably want that to be in the exception and not the rule. Whereas for the majority of people, it's, it is the rule because one of the things that my fast food diet, man, my probably thing that I ate, I did, I ate every day was a bowl of cereal or two. Most of the time it was two. Right. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, and even still like you, you go through degrees because you want the behavior. So when I stopped eating honey nut Cheerios and frosted flakes, and instead I started getting these Quaker oat squares because it's like, it's an adult food and it's high in fiber. But now today, if you actually look at the breakdown of, you know, the, the sugar content and all that stuff, it's, they're, they're very similar. It's just packaged up differently. So, you know, this is a really big conversation to have and just understanding like what, when I started this portion on this, is the last portion this is a cherry on top talking yeah. about the association with our biology and the gas chromatograph and being able to take something and make a thing taste like another thing that's not the thing it really does muddy up the biochemical waters to where our bodies simply are just as i say this is a caveat I, I almost said confused the human body is far more intelligent than any person any chemical any any food scientist it is ridiculously intelligent however because of its patterns those patterns and pathways can be manipulated but when they're manipulated there's going to be a side effect. That's the intelligence of the body because that side effect is giving you feedback that something is wrong. But we take the side effect and try to use a drug to treat the, that side effect, right? So mm. yeah, with that, with that said, again, cherry on top is, yes, absolutely, it's muddying up the biochemical waters. It's, it's decreasing our intelligence to be able to listen to that biochemical feedback. Our desires and our intelligence towards certain foods has really run amok and now it's, you know, it's in a heightened state of confusion, but you'll find as you reduce that ratio of ultra-processed foods and increase your intake of real foods, that intelligence starts to come back online. And it's like one of the most cool things that I've been able to see over the years. Yeah. In your book, you talk about how you were at a family barbecue, I think, and one of your family members was like, I ain't eating any of that organic shit. And you're like, Oh, you mean the stuff that doesn't have the chemicals in the, in, you know, in reading your book, I had, uh, that, you know, that drink called Zevia. That's like mm-hmm. a stevia version of like root beer. And in it, it has natural flavors, which I'm sure you could go off on about natural flavors. But what I noticed from the awareness that I was getting from your book is that I had an awareness that something was off even in drinking my, my Zevia. Like there was this, this isn't really root beer. This isn't really sugar. This is, and don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's like harm reduction in terms of the foods we choose and that kind of thing. But I couldn't ignore the dissonance that was being created between what my body was feeling from what I was drinking that really has zero nutritional value. And it made me think about some of the other things you talk about. And I'm, I don't know which, um, you can start wherever you feel intuitively called. One is that I'd always heard terms like macros. I'd heard it from like CrossFitters, you know, friends of mine who are in that zone. They're like, oh, macros and this and that. And I like how you broke it down because I finally had an understanding of what that language really meant. And it was, maybe you can go into why that's important and, and the importance of protein. I really got that from your book. And the other thing is that how all of this correlates to our relationship to our own selves, our emotionality. Like, I feel like if we, 
ignore the intuitive feeling of what foods we need and, and giving ourselves nutritionally informative foods, then we can then also create nutritious lives. Like if all of a sudden you want to heal toxic relationships, I find you then have no choice but to f- get rid of toxicity in your food. And that's why like any relational rock bottom, which is you're in any, you're in relationship with anything that is not you is informing you. So your body, your health, your food, your, your loves, you know, like your family, all these things are saying you're out of balance and you can't get in balance in one way and not want balance in another. So I wonder what that brings up for you because you spoke to the connection of food and emotions and changing what it means for us. So yeah, I'm curious. Man, you just said two of the most powerful things. I mean, it's more than that, but one of them is this interesting connection between our food and our relationships. And it took me a long time to talk about this, but the most remarkable thing that happened when I got myself physically healthier with some of the changes that I made, the thing that changed the most was my mind, my beliefs, my standards, um, my perception. That was the thing that I I didn't expect to think differently when I started to like eat better food. But that's what happened. And my standards changed. It didn't match anymore. Because even through that two-year struggle, I was still dabbling with the ladies. You know, this is so embarrassing to talk about. So I don't know why I'm being embarrassed, but I was still out here in these streets. All right. And it's just, again, it was part of my, my culture, you know, like, it was just one of those things that was encouraged, right? And especially yeah. if I'm if I'm getting attention, so like my friends are like, you know, even ask like where they at, you know, it, when yeah. they see me. And so mm-hmm. I have this like perception on that attractor force mm-hmm. and my standards and how I was associate, associating with the people in my life and the women in my life was just so dysfunctional. Like I didn't really have that perception, honestly, to to perspective take and to see the other end of the spectrum Mm -hmm. besides like a temporary pleasure on both sides. And that was the thing that I didn't know would switch. And no longer did that resonate with me. I had a distaste for for being that person. Like it just didn't, it didn't make Mm -hmm. sense. It didn't match up with the person that I perceived myself to be. It didn't match up with health. Like my goal was to be healthy. Like, that's the question I asked. What is it that I need to do to feel better? What is it that I need to do to be healthy? And so, so much more the pendulum swung, which that can be great in some sense, but you can get stuck there. I shifted from being so self-centered where I come from this environment where it's so, I'm inundated with violence. I'm inundated with potential for something bad to happen, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, getting shot, getting robbed, the whole thing. Like you got to be on your toes, right? So I, I, I have acquired this self-centered persona and I didn't want to be that. Like the person that my grandmother knew when I was a kid, I, I loved people. I loved her. I loved my cousin Candy. Like I was her, I, was, I would do anything to protect her. Like she was more important than me, right? So I had, and I swung to this other place of defense, so now as I'm getting healthier, I swing that pendulum again to a place of like service. Like now I'm trying to make up for all the shitty things I'd done unconsciously by put, pouring so much into these other people. And eventually when I met my 
my girlfriend, my my now wife, we've been together. We just had our 15th anniversary. We've been together mm, for 18 congrats. years. When I met her, and I it took a while for me to process this, but I felt like I was making up for all the things that I'd done in the past with her. She she was just the beneficiary. She didn't know. <laughs> I just yeah. seemed like, man. And she, but also from her past, she's just like, this is too good to be true. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, so she, and it didn't, I didn't know this until years after we were married. When I asked her to marry me, she was so surprised. She was just like, I thought you were going to break up with me at, you know, like I just thought at some point he was going to break up. Right. For no reason, just no like reason. The goodness would end like expecting yes. that. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Mm. You know? And so, but that resonated, that matched me and the person that I saw myself as, you know, mm-hmm. And by by you being of service, and I still do this to, today, this morning, the first thing that I did when I woke up this morning is I asked, when I become just a little bit aware, like I'm awake, you know, I'm waking up, I ask, how can I serve? How can I serve today? This kind of becomes, again, that dominant question. You can sacrifice yourself trying to help others. Mm-hmm. And so there's been many instances where my well-being was put on the line because I was so focused on that today, thankfully, I found a place of balance to even today, I'll, I'll share this with you. Today, I asked, how can I serve? And I took a breath and just sat with that for a moment. And I asked, what can I do to feel more vibrant, healthy, and energetic today? Right? So mm-hmm. something for myself. So I have balance, right? It's a both and world. And thanks to my, my friend, Michael Beckwith. Shout out to him because he made that awareness real to me that it's a both and world. It doesn't have to be one or the other. That's a, that's a lot, but you know, again, that part, but the, the other thing that you said was you leaned into the fact that information, what, what is, what are our foods informing our body to do? Right. Because food isn't just food. It's information itself. Food is information. And so it's giving instructions to every cell in our body from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet is getting information, just a tiny morsel of food. A tiny, like a speck of food touches your tongue. Every cell in your body is getting information based on that and being programmed and told what to do or what, how to respond. It is so powerful. And we have the ability to give ourselves high quality, sophisticated information, which that sophistication lies in simplicity, or we can provide data that incites a whole host of malware dependent, you know, viruses and you know, a cascade of problems and chaos, you know, so we, but we get to choose and that's the power that we have. I think what I was really struck by in your book is that it has made me really like much more deliberate and like, I've always thought about food, like really being considerate of it. And that, that's not true. I haven't always been. Food was a way that I escaped having to feel. So as soon as I had an allowance that I could go to 7-Eleven and get some, you know, in Canada, we have like five cent candies, which are basically gummy candies and chocolate milk, sugar, I didn't realize would be this way that I got to feel better. Like if I didn't fit in, I could eat candy, I could have a pop. And I found as an adult, that's been an interesting thing to try to even decondition. And in reading, one I was, as we were just sort of talking about is, I really felt this, you know, your book is titled Eat Smarter, but I really feel like it's about eating in a more sacred way, like being more sacred with our practices. And in doing that, I realized that my relationship to confronting my choices in food 
felt heavy to even consider or, or like really delve into the specifics. And as I read it, I really just, you know, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, that through levity in the way that you teach it, I found there was now an access point into it because it wasn't about this thing that's so heavy. That, And I think as a culture, we are you know, really afraid of, like diet is the constant thing we're inundated with. We're inundated with marketing that's like, your body's not enough. We have social media that says, your ass isn't good enough. Your abs aren't good enough. You can get implants for this, injections for that. And I think in a lot of ways, if we just return to that healthy relationship to food, it's almost like none of that would matter. You know, like maybe that's too simplistic or too mm. uh, sort of esoteric or optimistic, but it really feels that way. Like I was talking to Darren Olean. Do you know Darren Olean? Yeah, that's my guy. Yeah. Oh, uh, he's great. And he was showing me like growing sprouts in a mason jar that you just buy from like a sprout cap and then put some seeds in it and pour water in it. And five days later, you got a broccoli sprout salad that is 25 cents a day. And, you know, I'd never done that. So it inspired me to grow sprouts and start to eat those that I was growing in mason jars in my kitchen. And I'm like, wow, like we don't like to get our hands back in soil, to grow our own food, to do all of that. Um, so I guess my my question, I don't know exactly what it is, but I think one of them is that, do you feel like we're in sort of an act of revolution or returning or remembering to how we actually should be with food? And one of the core cornerstones, which you spoke a little bit about, but I want to hear a little more, is about actually the ritualistic sacred practice of eating and what that means for family and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, one of the things that I've I'm grateful to be aware of is that there can't be a problem without a solution. Mm -hmm. You know, it's two sides of the same coin. If the problem exists, solution has to exist. It's the other side of that thing. And this is where innovation comes in, you know, human innovation and creativity. Whenever we're presented with something, we figure it out. And, you know, right now, I don't think it's remotely an accident that with a culture that is so seduced and invested in external validation and social media and our time being siphoned by this constant concern and participation in these external things. Like our brains are literally wired up to maintain, you know, maybe a few dozen relationships. We're not wired up to give a shit what 5,000 people think, like 5,000 <laughs> followers. Like it just, it's so overwhelming, right? And it just doesn't even it doesn't compute with our, with how we're wired up. Now we can evolve, but evolution takes time. And so in a society where we're so externally focused, I don't think it's remotely an accident that meditation and yoga have become a part of our popular lexicon. Mm -hmm. At the same time, these things are emerging, mm. these inner tools, right? It's a solution manifesting out of the problem presenting itself, right? And that's where choice comes into place as a society. Like, who are we going to choose to be, right? We're presented, we see the problem, we see the solution, right? The same thing with food. Like, to such a profound extent, degraded our soil and our ability mm -hmm. to grow food that it is one of the most, you know, again, contrary to popular breaking news stories, like, this is a real news story. Like, this is real top order importance. And with that manifesting, because of that, innovation has taken place where 
regenerative farming practices. So to the degree that, you know, sacred cow, right? So if you see the, the film in association with the book, my guy, Rob Wolf, and you see this farmer who really wasn't necessarily a farmer to begin with, but running this experiment, and he turned what was essentially a desert into a thriving grassland, right? And in a matter of years versus what we have been indoctrinated with this belief, again, like this would take it would take a hundred years to regrow right. the topsoil or whatever. It's too late. There's no point. You know, the the solution manifests itself. So this drive towards real food, towards even like you just said, growing things yourself, like simple things like that. It's a return in a sense, but I don't like to use the word going back to. It's moving, mm-hmm. it's moving forward with updated knowledge. Yeah. Amen. And being able to pick up these pieces, like our ancestors gave us these insights, but we're like, ah, fuck that. We know better. Technology, blah, blah. Round up on everything, you know? Let's yeah. just oh, get this these field yeah. sprayed. Go get Dusty Crop Hopper to spray this stuff and like, you know, just this <laughs> uh factory farming protocol and mindset and paradigm. Once that happens and so much degradation takes place in our society, at some point, it has to explode in another direction. If not, we're not going to be around here. There's only so long that people who are profiting from our sickness can siphon this machine before we're either ending up in the matrix pots or there's a revolution <laughs> towards like, this shit hasn't worked. Like, right. I'm, so, I'm so grateful and I'm grateful for my grandmother because she's a core ingredient in me being such a results-oriented human being where I can just look at, like, just, and, and, and inspire that in other people. Let's just look at the results of what we've been doing, right? On the surface, because people are walking around with this superficial idea that we are, we're so sophisticated and we have so much innovation and we're so intelligent and we're living longer. Because we have these superficial beliefs, we're not looking at the actual results. We are the sickest society in the history of humanity. Here in the United States, we are the most obese, most chronically diseased nation in the history of the world. And we pride ourselves on being the most, you know, the superpower, the most intelligent species because we got a fucking Tesla. We think that we're so intelligent, but in reality, we're living in the stone age. We're living mm-hmm. in the stone age. We can't even take care of our own fucking body that we live in. Something is severely wrong here. No way with our level of in- innovation and intelligence should we be so chronically diseased. And by the way, Amen. people don't know this. We have this perception that even infectious diseases, because of all of our innovations and you know, and hygiene and all this stuff, infectious diseases have been going down. No, no, no. They've gone up, not recently, in recent decades, they just continue to climb. Infectious diseases just continue to go up. Something is wrong. The result that we believe, right? We got all these medicines and vaccines and all these mm-hmm. things. Why the fuck are things getting worse? Why do we keep getting more sick? Heart disease keeps going up. Cancer keeps going up. Things that were rare. It is insanity, right? But again, we think we're so evolved. That's part of the problem. You know, we have to really understand our place in this thing is we don't know what the fuck is going on. As a, as a society, when it comes to medicine and healthcare, we're complete morons. We can't get shit better. We didn't cure. What have we cured? Everything. It's like, it's just. <laughs> right. Everything's oh, we, worse. We, we, we cure polio. This is the problem because we 
have a society, a system that is predicated on the farming of sick people. We have mm. drug companies that are literally making hundreds of billions of dollars profiting from disease management, not curing shit. Why would they want to cure diabetes when it is a absolute cash cow? Why? Why? Insulin is so profitable. Why, why on earth would we train our physicians to simply help these patients to remove the cause of the insulin resistance and also implant in their psyche that, oh, people won't do it anyways, because that's the shit that they say. Right. I've got colleagues. Listen, I'm grateful that I'm in this position because I, the top people in the world, I'm t- whatever institution you want to talk about, my friends at Harvard, at Stanford, all right, they listen to me. <sighs> They're listening to my show. And they come in here and they sit in this chair and they say, hey, I'm a big fan. Why? How? It's because I'm honest and I'm taking the time to read the data that unfortunately we have a system that creates this time tension to where they're operating in this quantity over quality model where they're not able to get educated about a new randomized placebo controlled trial on fucking turmeric or curcumin being able to reduce you know, inflammation as good as an NSAID, right? Instead, they're getting educated in their busy, busy schedule by a sales rep from a drug company. We think our physicians are getting educated. Their, their use of a particular medication protocol, standard of care, that they're getting educated in their expensive uh, university education. No, they're getting educated by fucking drug reps. That's what's happening in their day-to-day life. You brought it up, the thing, which is like, will innovation or we rise to the occasion to solve that problem that's presented. And if we're being simple, critical thinking, results-oriented human beings, we're going to look at the state of affairs and see something is severely wrong. Matter of fact, multiple mm-hmm. things are severely wrong. And there are, we have a system that is profiting from our collective sickness and ignorance. And I'm not trying to speak highly of myself. I wanting to speak about our potential as a community to look at results instead of accreditations because we have some of the very most intelligent people on our planet being taught to think the wrong thing. If you take a very smart person and you inundate them with perceived prestige and the potential to serve, which that's why most, the vast majority of people are getting into medicine to help people. And you take those two ingredients and then you teach them the wrong thing. You teach them how to treat symptoms instead of teaching them how to remove the cause of the disease. And also, of course, giving them that caveat, which is people don't listen anyways. Keep them alive. That's why today, and this is a fact, we are now, we are the first generation who are not going to outlive our predecessors. That trend of our our lifespan extending or growing, getting longer, has now reversed, which was, of course, the natural order of things. It was the natural side effect determined by our actions, right? So that's number one. And number two, our perception of we're living longer is a misnomer because we're not talking about health span. We're talking about lifespan. Mm. My my mother-in-law, my greatest teacher, besides my wife, right? That pair my greatest teachers in this lifetime. And my, my, my grandmother has to be thrown in the mix too. That was the early, that was phase one. 
Phase two, my mother-in-law and my, and my wife. My, my mother-in-law is a brilliant occupational therapist. And so I've had the honor of working with her as well and you know, having the opportunity to see her work with these patients and to see the absolute severe degradation of a human being who's now reserved to sit in a chair and to be force-fed all of these medications. And she's coming into the story, and I'm telling you, I'm just going to share this little bit with you. I've seen her because she goes above and beyond that protocol, and she talks to them about things that were not taught to her in her education, where she actually became an instructor. She became an instructor for uh, other occupational therapists, right, because of her degree of insight into that field, and moved her entire family from Kenya to the United States. She was educated in England, and like one of the rare women from her village to to leave and to matter of fact, to even get that level of education. Like she had to break through so many different stereotypes and paradigms. And so brilliant person, brilliant thinker. But when she's working with these patients, she's finding ways to educate them on nutrition, on meditation and these different things. I've seen some most, some of the most miraculous things come from this woman, but there's only so much one person can do being put into this environment where it's sick care. Mm-hmm. And these folks are just being inundated with so much that's supporting their sickness. And I'm bringing this up to say this, that person might be 70 years old that she's going to see, but they can't walk. They can't use the bathroom on their own. This is a commonality. It's becoming a norm where we're not living longer. We're dying longer. We're keeping people mm-hmm. alive at such a high degree of dysfunction and degradation. They're just in suffering while there are people simultaneously, who are living centarians. There's the, the places on the planet with the highest number of centarians. We'll just say Okinawa, for example, into their 80s, 90s, 100s, exercising daily, hanging out with friends and family and community, making their own food. That's possible too. But we've mistaken lifespan for health span. Mm. And that's, that's another part of this problem. And so, as I said earlier, the solution has to manifest, right? It's two sides of the same coin. We are in a massive problem right now with our health as a species, and it's affecting how we relate to each other. Look at the results. The divisiveness right. is visceral. It's tangible. But even that, when we realize something's going to happen to help us to remember that we are one species, it's humanity, it's team human, right? Something, it is bound to happen whether we have this movement within ourselves, like because of conversations like this and the people listening who are inspired to rekindle that connection first with ourselves, then with others, they go hand in hand as we've been talking about. It's amazing how our relationships change when we get ourselves physically out there and the data shows it. And there's entire chapters. The reason I wrote Eat Smarter, I gave people what on the surface, what, what they want, which is the very best information on utilizing food and nutrition to improve your metabolic health. Mm -hmm. But the reason I wrote the book was to talk about how food impacts how we interact with other human beings, how it impacts our relationships, our ability to perspective take, our proclivity towards violence. The data was so, because of where I'm from, it was so, so visceral, so powerful. I had to share. And this is coming again out of Harvard, it's coming out of the top institutes out of Oxford, you know what I'm saying? And I'm just putting the data together in a way that's make, that makes sense, that's empowering, and also that's actionable. 
because again, there can't be a problem without a solution. That's why we're here on the planet right now. You know, everybody listening, they're here. It's not by an accident. There's something about them and about their spirit and their mission on this planet that aligned everything for them to be here right now. It's because they're a part of the solution. Amen. I feel like that was a beautiful podcast sermon now. And, you know, this audience has uh, admiration for passionate uh, engagement with the things we love and the things that the solutions to these things. First off, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for sharing your light, for sharing your passion, for sharing your inspiration. And um, where can people find more of you? Where can they get the book? All that kind of stuff. Uh, wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been powerful. Like I, I really felt like, you know, there are certain things that, you know, just over the past couple of years, you know, just directing people back inward. And empowerment is such an important conversation to have. So thank you for creating the platform for this conversation. Uh, people can find the books anywhere books are sold. Eat Smarter is my first, uh, is, my, is my latest book, uh, USA Today, national bestseller, all that good stuff. And I think you're just really going to enjoy it from page one. So good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Sleep Smarter is my, my first major book. And it's an international bestseller. It's translated into like 21 languages. Ah, it's so crazy. It's so crazy, so powerful from a guy from Ferguson, Missouri, East St. Louis, Missouri, you know, South City to, you know, my book is in libraries in China. Like that's, that's not it's it's not just me. It's not just me. There are so many people who are involved in something like that to make a moment and a movement like that possible to where even sleep wellness is a popular part of our lexicon. When I started, it wasn't. It wasn't a part of the conversation and it was taking something that is kind of, uh, it, it has a tendency to be a little strange and even boring topic to make sleep sexy and something that's desirable to improve. And the same thing, and manifested out of the same thing we've been talking about, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. Uh, so mm. a quote from Winston Churchill that really resonates. And it's just, it was time. And I'm grateful that I got to be the vehicle that it came through because I'm about that life. And I will not give up. I will not stop. And so, you know, those are the, the two books. You can find them anywhere that books are sold. And of course, you can check me out. My, my show is called The Model Health Show. And, um, you know, gr again, grateful to say it's been the number one health podcast in the country many times. And I'm saying this again because this is the potential for all of us. I didn't have any following or any of that stuff. I just found a way to serve and to teach and to, to give my heart and to empower people. And that's the the result of it. So you can find it anywhere that you listen to your podcast. It's called The Model Health Show. And we got some powerful masterclasses on every subject matter that you could imagine that I teach. Also, the very best experts in their respective fields. So again, Dr. Bruce Lipton with epigenetics. Got the top person in uh, gastrointestinal health, the top people, because that's another huge issue, of course, the microbiome that science is emerging. And man, what I've got in store, oh my goodness, like I'm just getting warmed up. So. That's where people can find me. Yeah, well, I can't wait then. If this is your warm-up, I can't wait for game time. Man, it's been honestly such an honor. Appreciate you sharing your light, sharing your passion, and saying yes to all of this. And I love that. What was that quote from Churchill? There's, what is it? There's, There's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. It's beautiful. Well, for everyone listening, go get his books and go listen to your podcast. Your podcast is incredible. I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.